0: Amen. Thank you, for the dance. you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin there tonight. Our study now for several months has been on the Godhead. And so to make sure we are on the same page, I want to ask a question. When we say the Godhead, what are we referring to? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together they make up what? The Godhead, okay? So uh, we began a week or so ago to focus... On Jesus Christ, but truly he is a part of the Godhead. And again, I need to ask the question. I know it's kind of rhetorical because I'm preaching to the choir, but of the three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which one is God? All of them, okay? All three equally God. Three different entities, and again, uh, it's hard to explain that. It's just simply what the Bible does teach. Well, tonight our focus is on the radiance of Jesus Christ. Let's begin in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Let's just read verse 1. This will be our foundational verse. Thank you, Dan. Now, again, uh, scholars are debating, are still debating on who is the author of the book of Hebrews. Uh, But the bottom line is God's the author because it's inspired by God. But in the book of Hebrews is really God's better way, a better covenant, um, a better savior. I'm I'm a better high priest. Uh, Everything is better. And here in chapter 10, verse 1, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about the law. And he reminds us that the law was simply a shadow of good things to come. Now, what is a shadow in general? Of what? Of the original. It's simply a reflection of the original. Now, it certainly looks like the original. It resembles the original. But it is not what? It's not the original, okay? So the law the Bible says, was a shadow of good things to come. And so, again, that law would be considered the old covenant. And just as the old covenant prefigured and illustrated the new covenant, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come. So it's not the reality itself. Now, please understand, uh, first of all, Where did the law come from? It came from God. So there was nothing wrong with the law. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us it was just temporary, uh, if you will, or just for that period of time it was only a shadow, not the reality that was going to come. It's interesting. The bottom line is I think the, the law simply offered a preliminary sketch of what was coming. Now most of you know that through the years my dad and I had a remodeling business and, uh, before my dad became computer savvy, a little bit computer savvy where he used a program, a lot of time he would sketch a drawing up for customers just with a pencil and just a rough sketch. And he was really good at what he did. But you don't, you know, it's amazing how many husbands didn't like that because once their, once their wives saw the sketch, guess what they wanted? Ah, <laughs> they wanted the real thing. Amen sketch was free but the real thing that meant you had to pay some money out but again we know you know grace is free but the bottom line was that's what the law was that's what the old covenant was it was just a preliminary sketch it was a foreshadow of what was coming and again uh we're talking here about the good things that were coming uh and the writer of Hebrews is talking about the New Covenant. And we're not going to read it tonight, but back in chapter 8 and verses 10 through 12, he describes the New Covenant. Now remember, when God gave the law to Moses, what was the law originally written on? On stone, okay? And that's where the law was you know, given. Of course, Moses came off the mountain with that law. But nonetheless, uh, the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 8, verse 10 through 12, that this law would not be written on stone. The New Covenant will be written on their hearts. And also, the New Covenant would include direct access to God. So, do you see the difference between the two? Under the Old Covenant, it was written on stone. And under under the Old Covenant, did everybody have direct access to God? No. Only the High Priest once a year. But the New Covenant is certainly going to be Better. Now, you might want to put your hand or put Mark, Exodus 34, uh, that chapter. We're going to be going back and forth there tonight for a little bit. But it's in Exodus 34 uh, that we have a, a beautiful illustration of what really went on as Moses comes off of the mountain uh, with a radiant face. And it's interesting where this is placed in the context of God's Word. Now remember, uh, the book of Exodus is about what, basically overall? The Exodus. Thank you. Thus, yeah, that's why it's called that. Would you agree? It's a book of redemption. They're being re- redeemed out of Egypt. And so, what happens in Exodus 34? It, it really comes after the legal covenant God made with Jehovah, God made with Israel. I'm sorry. And it comes before it is actually put into effect, and setting up the tabernacle, and God's glory filling it. It's interesting uh, in chapter two of Second um, of chapter three of Second Corinthians, Paul illustrates that, and he talks about uh, how that old covenant was etched in stone that led to death. And yet even Paul said even even though that was true there was such a glory on the face of Moses that the people of Israel could not look upon his face and and Paul goes on to say if that glory was fantastic the glory of the old covenant how much more tremendous is the glory under the new way the new covenant and so paul says it's going to be a that's a new covenant is a greater glory now again we're going to come back to these you know back and forth in just a few minutes here but let me again re, re remind you today the bible tells us that this old covenant, the old way in fact if you understand the law the old covenant it brought condemnation so what was the penalty of disobeying the law? Death. And the Bible says that covenant which brought condemnation was glorious. So the question is, how much glo- more glorious was the co- covenant that brings life going to be? No comparison. God's better way. Now, again... In Corinthians, Paul reminds us that that first glory, if you compare it to the new glory, was really not glorious at all. Because there is no comparison. Because the new glory is certainly overwhelming. So, when we think about the old way, the old covenant, if you will, that God gave Moses, it's now been replaced. That was glorious. But the new covenant is more glorious. And whereas the old covenant was temporary, how long will the new covenant last? Forever. It is permanent. So in Exodus chapter 34, we see both a comparison and a contrast with the dispensation of the spirit of grace, the spirit of life being more Abundant. Now, first of all, how many know God knows what he's doing? How many know that God knows our needs? He knows who we are. He knows where we are. He knows our heart. Now, it's interesting. In his providence, in his omniscience, before the dispensation of grace of the new covenant was inaugurated, God saw it was necessary that man be tested, be tested under the law in order to show who we are, that we are fallen, sinful creatures. Now, let me make sure we understand what I'm reading up to here in this thought tonight. I realize that there are people in our world who are not even Christians, can do good things. And I hear people all the time say, people basically are good. What does the Bible say? There's none good. Yeah, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But there's times we convince ourselves we're basically good. It doesn't mean we can't do good things. But at the heart of it, we are not. We all fall horribly short of the glory of God. And the trial that we are under, the burden that we carry because of that, was certainly clearly shown several ways under the Mosaic economy. First thing is we have to, we know from the law that man is ungodly. Second of all, that man is without strength. Let me give you a verse, Romans 5, verse 6. Anybody got that? Romans 5, verse 6. Okay, now again. Who did Christ die for according to Romans five six? The ungodly. Who are who were the ungodly? Or who are the ungodly? Everyone. So God died for who? Everyone. For all of us. Man is ungodly, and the law demonstrated that. Say it again, Marvin. That's what our world teaches, isn't it? But by nature, we are not good. We are not good by nature. Now, what's interesting is (laughs) we are ungodly. So on our own, what can we do about that? What, Dan? Nothing. On our own, we can't do anything. Because we are without strength. So the law shows us who we are. We're ungodly. And <clears throat> remember, for years, a lot of the Jews tried to please God by keeping the law, but what was the problem? They couldn't keep all of it. They were without strength. So the law shows us we're ungodly, we are without strength, but a third thing we find out, we are enmity against God, we are rebellious against God, Uh, Romans 8, verse 7. Amen. Amen. God's law basically says, "Thou shalt not." It's been a while since I've come across this, but we've seen maybe pictures of it, or portrayed in cartoons, or maybe maybe on television shows. Somebody walking down the street, and maybe someone just painted a bench, and they put a sign under it says, "Wet paint." What's the first thing people usually do? Say it again, Red Ball. <laughs> Why? Just to see. They want to test it. Years ago, I was at uh, 84 Lumber had a, a lumber yard in the uh, Summerside area, off of in that area over there, and, and I was in there, and, uh, and there was a, a young father with their he had a boy when probably four or five years old. The boy was. And there was a, a line painted on the floor. And the dad said, I'm going to walk over here to this shelf. Not wasn't very far away. with went eyesight." side. He said, don't step across that line. Well, as soon as dad turned his back, guess what little boy did? He stepped across the line. But the thing that is, true God drew a line, did he not? And God says in so many words, don't do what? Don't cross that line. And Paul reminds us, our problem is we've got a sinful mind, a sinful nature. And a sinful mind (coughs) cannot submit to God because our sinful minds uh, is the seat of the indwelling sin in our lives. And our mind is in permanent rebellion against God. That's what enmity means. And so, the sinful mind, by instinct, recognizes in God's law, there's a danger of judgment. And so, the sinful mind says, I would rather live in ignorance. I'd rather ignore it. But my question, what does that solve? Nothing. Now, by the way, if you think that man is not rebellious by nature, uh, go to John chapter 1, verse 11. Thank you, Dan. And, and what, a, what a display. For 33 and a half years, or thereabouts, Jesus, the Son of God, lived on this earth. And John said he came into his own world. That's what the first own means. And then he said his own, that means his own people, the Jews, simply would not receive him. They rebelled against him. Why? Because light always, always bothers darkness. Always. But not only was he not received, the Bible says, in fact, uh, Isaiah prophesied, that when he came, he would be despised and rejected of men. Did that happen? Yes. The Bible says they also hated him even though they had no cause to do. Uh, John 15 verse 25. Amen. Now by the way, Jesus is referring to Psalm 69 verse 4. I mean, he came to his own people that rejected him. He was despised and rejected by all men for the most part. They didn't have any cause to do so, but they still hated him. And the only thing that finally appeased their hatred was the day when they nailed him on the cross. That's the only time they were appeased. Now remember... It wasn't just the Jews that put him there, but also the Gentiles. Look what Jesus said in John twelve thirty one about that. Amen. So Jesus now is the judgment of this world, not just Jews. Judgment has fallen on this world. Now remember, he's looking ahead to the crucifixion. Now, let me think here for a minute, okay? For lack of a better word on my part, and I hope I'm doing it justice, the law was a period of probation. The Bible said there was a time that God winked at man's ignorance. But my friend, when Jesus Jesus was crucified... All that changed. All that changed. Jesus says, now, speaking of the crucifixion, is the judgment of this world. On Calvary, the probation or testing of man ended. And man is no longer under probation. Man is now condemned. Uh, a verse just came to my mind. Somebody help me out here. John chapter 3. Try verse 17. Somebody find that for me when you get a chance, okay? Is that John three seventeen? Go on, read another verse then. Amen. Why are they condemned? They don't believe on Jesus Christ as Lord. Man is under condemnation because they don't believe. Romans 3, look at verses 10 through 12. What, do you, what, what idea do you see repeated here over and over again? None. None of us. None righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No, no one seeks God. Everybody's out going out of the way. All together. Unprofitable. There's none that does good. That does good? In the case we didn't get that, Paul says, no, not one. You've got to ask Paul, what's your point? When you agree there's something he's trying to tell us here? We are ungodly, we are without strength, and we are enmity against God. We are in rebellion against God. So man is no longer on trial. We are now culprits, if you will, under sentence. And nothing we can do on our own. What kind of excuse can we give? None. There is none. So, the issue before us then, none good, none righteous, we're all guilty. The issue between God and the sinner is simply this. Will we bow to God's righteous verdict? Now, by the way, the first three chapters of Romans, or at least the first two, Paul puts the whole world on trial. What's the verdict? Guilty. Guilty, every one. So that's the verdict. I have an idea. Let's appeal that verdict. Huh? Yeah, there's not a judge high enough. When the judge of the universe says you're guilty, guess what? You're guilty. We are guilty. But oh, got some good news, folks. That's where the gospel meets us. Glory to God. That is where the gospel meets us. I'm guilty. Yes, I agree with God. I am guilty. It comes to us. It comes to all who are already lost. By the way, did did the death of Christ make us lost? No. Why? We were already lost. It, It comes to those who are ungodly. It comes to those who are without strength. It comes to those Who were at enmity with God? You know what grace is all about, and that's where the gospel meets us. The gospel comes and and it announces to us, "Yes, you're guilty, but you need to know about the amazing grace of God, because that's the only hope for poor sinners, and I'm one of them, and so are you." here's the problem. No one will welcome grace until they bow to the sentence of God against them. Until they recognize, I am guilty. John tells us if we confess our sins. And that we're confessed means more than saying it with your mouth. It literally means to agree with God. Until we agree with God that we are guilty, that we are ungodly, that we are without strength, that we are at enmity with God, until we agree with God, grace will not be welcomed in our lives. Acts 20, 21, look what Paul preached. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Paul's message was simple and clear. He preached repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Now, we know repent means to change your mind, change your direction. Uh, I think the Greek word is metaneo. But the bottom line of repentance is whenever we acknowledge the sentence of condemnation that we lived under. When we acknowledge that we are sinners, when we acknowledge that the law has condemned us and we've lived under that for all of our lives. And so that's repentance. Repentance. And Paul said, I preach repentance toward God. I acknowledge who I am before God. But then Paul said, I preach faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And faith is, we know it, you know, it's certainly trusting, but it means we accept the grace and mercy that God has extended to us. And God has extended grace and mercy to us through who? Through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I preached to repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but before I was saved, I used to turn over a new leaf. I turned it over so many times, I wore the leaf out. Amen. And I want you to realize tonight, folks, repentance is not turning over a new leaf. It is not. Repentance is not even making a promise to mend our ways. Repentance is real whenever I affirm In my heart, that God is true when he says, I am without strength. That God is correct when he says, I cannot help myself. When God tells me in his word and convinced me by the Holy Spirit that in myself, in my own strength, My case is hopeless. Do you ever tell yourself, I'll do better the next time? What usually happens? You don't. (laughs) And one thing I had to realize, I am no more able to do better the next time then I'm able to create a new world. I can't do it. Not on my own. So until that happens in a person's life, until it is really believed. Now remember, folks, uh, a lot of folks will say, well, Lord, you show me then I believe. What's wrong with that? Backwards. Yeah, you put it. But the Bible says, if you'll believe, guess what? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we're not talking about the result of experience. We believe on the basis of God's word. Thank God for that. On the basis of God's word. And here's what's interesting. Whenever we do that, believe not on our experiences, but believe solely on the basis of what God's word says, then we will turn to Jesus Christ and we will welcome him. But not welcome him just as a helper, but as a savior. Thank God for the time of my life I realized I don't need a helper. I need a Savior. Aren't you glad God knows what we need? Recognize Him, not as a helper, but as a Savior. Second Corinthians chapter 3. We kind of alluded to it a little earlier. We didn't read it yet. Let's read verses 7, uh, seven through 9, Second Corinthians chapter 3. Okay, thank you, Phyllis. It's a few short verses, quite a bit to unpack here. Uh, when I was making my notes, I underlined in verse 7 the ministration of death. In verse 8, I underlined the ministration of the Spirit. Verse 9, the ministration of condemnation, and the ministration of righteousness. I suppose that a lot of theologians would refer to this as dispensationalism or dispensations. But what was true in a dispensation had to be true experientially as well. And it's interesting, Paul says there had to be a ministration of debt. And by the way, a lot of translations, Uh, put the word uh, ministry there, and that's what ministration means. There had to be a ministry of death before there could be a ministration of spirit or life. And Paul says that there also had to be a ministration of condemnation before the ministration of righteousness. Now let's let that kind of mellow a little bit on our minds. Because when we consider and we think about a ministry of condemnation and death, and those two go together, i got to tell you, at least for me, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around it. At least we're not so apt to do that. But we... Think about the ministry of grace and we certainly want to try to understand that. It sounds so much better. But a ministry of condemnation, that's not so easy to get a hold of. But remember what I said earlier, God knows what we need. And God knew, God knew that a ministry of condemnation Was man's first need. Uh, You ever been driving along, going somewhere, and all of a sudden you realize you're lost? Charlie, don't you say a word. He's thinking about me already. I know he is. Some years ago, I was taking my sister back. To her, to her home in uh, Elizabethtown. Elizabeth Man, we're just driving along. And my niece was probably four or five years old. And she says, Mommy, aren't we usually at home by now? Now, I understand something. I've been driving the wrong direction for over an hour. But when did I change courses? When I realized I was lost. And God knew, our omniscient God knew, that he had to first show us what we really are. Show us what is really in our natures. He had to show us that we were hopelessly wrecked. There was no way we were capable of meeting the righteous requirements of a holy God. And he had to show us that. Show us that we were horribly lost before I could ever become a debtor to mercy alone. He knew that. So again, what was true dispensationally also became true experientially. By the way, Paul, the Apostle Paul understood that. Romans 7 verse 9. What's Paul telling us? What's he saying in that verse? There was a time Paul thought he was alive. He really thought he was alive. Now, understand something, folks. Paul was no different than we are. And before we realize how serious the law and sin is, we believe that we are alive. That's where Paul was. But Paul says, all of a sudden, I read the commandment. Now, he gives an example. We, we put any thou, thou shalt not in there. <laughs> and so, the significance of any commandment, one not to covet, is very clear to us. And all of a sudden, when it becomes clear, we realize our sin and we die. The wages of sin is death. It's inevitable. Sin brings death. And that's exactly where Paul found himself. Now, before he was born again, before he was saved, if you were to ask Paul in his own estimation, he would say, you know what? I was alive. I was alive. I was alive without the law. I was alive apart from meeting his demands. But when the commandment came, when the Spirit of God spoke to his heart and began to work within him, when the Word of God came in power to his heart, the one who thought he was alive realized what? I'm dead. Sin was revived. And Paul... There was a time in his life, this righteous Pharisee, there was a time in his life God made him aware of his awful condition. A time in his life when he died to his self-righteous complacency. And Paul said, I thought I was alive. But when the come the command came Paul said ain't die now by the way would you agree that Paul realized by this time he was hopeless do you think he realized that all that law things he tried to do didn't help him one bit Now it's interesting, and we're comparing here with what happened to Moses. But the glory of God, the mediator, didn't come before, but it came after the legal covenant. Let's go back to Exodus 34, look at verse 28. We've read that so many times, and I have to speak for myself. I think sometimes we, we sort of take it for granted. Can you imagine what a time that was? How long was he there? Forty days and forty nights. Huh. What did he eat during that time? Nothing. Who mercy? Huh? Me and Ralph, we'd have trouble. I can speak for for me and Ralph, all right? Forty days and forty nights. But that reminds us, I think, of Christ in the wilderness in Matthew 4. How long was Jesus in the wilderness? Forty days and what he? Nothing. So, in Exodus, it was Moses... In the Gospels, it was Christ. It was Moses on the mountain. It was Jesus in the wilderness. But on the mountain, now think about this. Moses was blessed with a glorious revelation from God. Absolutely. He was so enraptured in that. But here's the thing, folks. Would you agree that no one experienced that kind of blessing except Moses? Yeah. The Bible said he communed with God face to face. So on the mountain, Moses had that glorious revelation from God. But Christ, in the wilderness, was assaulted by Satan. For how long? Forty days and forty nights. Now, by the way, I think both situations are amazing. I I think it's amazing that God would allow a sinful man... Help me out. Was Moses sinful? Sure he was. Amazing that God would allow a simple man to be raised to such a place he was allowed to spend 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of our great God. And like you said, Phyllis, I don't think he cared about not eating. He was so enthralled with that. What a blessing. But I also think that the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, would stoop so low to allow himself to be tempted by Satan. For how long? Forty days and forty nights. What he did. Exodus thirty-four. Go, go back there to verse twenty-nine. Okay, thank you, Phyllis. Now, by the way, we're gonna kind of read this backwards. But I wanted. To, I did it on purpose here. This is the second time that Moses goes on the mountain. Okay, he comes off, and notice what it says. Uh, his face was shining, and uh, wow, Moses didn't even know it, okay? His face was glowing. Now go back to Exodus 32, verse 19. Okay, thank you, Dan. So there we have the first time uh, he came off of the mountain. Um, question. Two different times. Do you think it, the appearance on his face was the same or was it different each time? So think about that for a minute, okay? What did he see the first time he came off the mountain? He saw them doing what? Yes. Yeah. You think it showed? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Don't miss that. The first time, I think you'll agree, his face was still with anger, with rage. He couldn't believe what they were doing. But the last time, the second time he comes down, what's going on with his face? He's radiant. It is glowing with radiance. It's interesting, the first time he comes down, he sees a people engaged in idolatry. (laughs) And this time they're not, but what are they afraid to do? To look on his face, they were afraid to even look upon him. The first time he comes down, his face is filled with anger. He's angry in and a rage, and he takes those tables of stone and he dashes them on the ground. But not this time. This time he would deposit them in the ark. Again, making comparison and contrast here. There was a time in the New Testament, <coughs> had some similarities, but also along with that some distant similarities. On the mountain, the face of Moses was made radiant. But there was a time when Jesus took a couple of disciples upon the mountain and before their very eyes, Christ was transfigured. Go to Matthew 17, verse 2. Thank you, Phyllis. Now remember, well, let me ask you. Why, going back to Moses, why did his face shine when he came off that mountain? He'd been in the presence of God. He had been in the presence of God. So the glory on Moses' face, hear me well, was a reflected glory. Wouldn't you agree? His face reflected the glory of God. Now, my question is, and we know that for several reasons, but one reason I want to ask, how did that, did that, did his face shine from that day on forever? See what? We hit his face, but you know one reason? It finally began to fade. It faded away. Because it was only a reflection. His face was shining. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Christ was transfigured, his radiance, his glory, his glow was not a reflection of God, it was inherent within him. Why? Amen. He was God. And now only did his face shine, guess what? Even his clothing was filled with radiance. Similar yet dissimilar. Now we know from Exodus account that Moses at first didn't realize that the skin on his face was shining. Now, I can't prove it without a doubt here, but evidently, Jesus must have known his did. Because in verse 9 of Matthew 17, he says to the disciples, tell the vision to no man. To me, suggesting they saw something nobody has ever saw. And Jesus must have realized the change that was showing to those disciples. How much time have I left, Jason? How much did I want? Okay. You said five minutes? Oh, okay. So, where are we? I think we learned tonight there are certain consequences... When we have intimate communion with God. Number one. Whenever we draw near to God. I'm talking about real fellowship. It will always affect our lives. To a marked degree. You cannot draw near to God. And not come away changed. It always. Affects our lives. Moses was absorbed in the words he received from God and absorbed in contemplating God's glory. And even then, his own person, he spent that time with God and when he came off the mountain, did they know it? Absolutely. They could see it in his face. The same is true now. Psalm 34, verse 5. Amen. God's people are never put to shame. In fact is, when we draw near to God, we are radiant because God hears us and God comes to us. And you cannot come near to God and walk away not being changed, always for the better. And it's when we have close communion with God that conforms us to His image. And we are never more Christ-like than when we walk often and closely with Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Go ahead. 3.18. 3.18. Yes, we were changed by the glory of God. So, number one, when you're close to God, you'll be changed. Number two, the closer you get to God, the less occupied you are with yourself. (laughs) Moses' face was glowing. He didn't know it. And by the way, what a difference between that and the self-righteous Pharisees. (laughs) Because For the Pharisees, it just brought pride. They were complacent to walk with God. But because Moses had been with God, it brought humility. He didn't even know it. Psalm 115, verse 1. Who deserves the glory? God does. And whenever we draw near to God, we come away changed. Number two, we are less occupied with ourselves. And number three, we're afraid to draw near. Exodus 34:30. Are you in Exodus 34? Verse 30. You see, whenever... One of the effects of communion with God... Even though we may not realize it, the change in our lives, Moses didn't realize it, but others recognized it. Others recognized it. Folks, you cannot keep company with the Holy One for very long and not have His imprint affect our lives. The glory of Christ. Let's stop there for a night. We'll pick it up next week, Lord willing. Let's take a few moments and go to the Lord in prayer. Again, we want to remember all.